This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. You are about to hear frightening news about methane and the Arctic. And then you will find out how millions around the world react to bad news on climate from the Gallup poll people. But how can we handle this black knowledge personally? With her training in psychology, Carolyn Baker helps people through each personal climate crisis. First, the terrible news. And it doesn't come from a YouTube pundit or fringe content producer. The speaker is Sir David King, a leading scientist in the United Kingdom and the world. David has been professor and chancellor at prestigious British universities. From 2000 to 2007, he was chief scientific advisor to the UK government. David King represented the United Kingdom on climate change and currently heads the Climate Crisis Advisory Group, which is part of the Centre for Climate Repair at Cambridge. David, he prefers Dave, is speaking as lead presenter at an online webinar hosted by the non-profit group MethaneAction.org. The former host of EarthBeat Radio, Daphne Wysham, is CEO at Methane Action. Top American scientist Rob Jackson from Stanford is an advisor to the group and participated in this webinar. Here is Sir David King speaking on September 15th, 2022. Just to kick off, I've got to say, first of all, that when we listen to many, many people who are concerned about climate change, they talk about the level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere being 420 parts per million. That is the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Another correction, methane is instantaneously, not over a 100-year period, is instantaneously more than 100 times more effective per molecule than uh, carbon dioxide. And so methane levels are now rising faster than ever before and are a big contributor to the way in which the world is now shifting. And I have to say, we are in a crisis already. So yes, methane, the subject of this conference, is not sufficiently focused on uh, for all sorts of reasons. But let me just now dwell on the state of the planet as it is today. Uh, We have last week a critically important paper published in Science on the tipping points. And in that paper, it sets out the fact that at 1.5 degrees, we're already seeing tipping points going that impact on the whole world. But at 3 degrees, we've got a whole series of tipping points that are well in the way of any form of manageable planet for humanity. Now, the bad news is that if you look at the Arctic Circle region, it has been heating up at four times the rate of the rest rest of the planet's average over the last 20 years. And what that means is that the Arctic Circle is now more than three degrees centigrade above the pre-industrial level for the Arctic Circle. So when we look at the tipping points in the Arctic Circle, we understand they have irreversibly gone unless there's an intervention. And so here's the the dreadful situation we're in. The Arctic Circle tipping points have gone. The reason is the Arctic Circle has lost the ice that was covering the Arctic Ocean for so many thousands of years. 
and and during the polar summer months during those three three north pole summer months and the the consequences of this are quite simply enormous for the whole planet greenland now sits in that blue arctic ocean soaking up sunshine whereas of course the albedo of the ice is such that the ice was reflecting sunshine back into space the consequences that and i say this carefully greenland ice is now melting irreversibly six and a half seven meters sea level rise are on the cards right now and if one says well it might take 150 years nevertheless if we extrapolate forward 30 years from now the country of vietnam 90% of the landmass of vietnam will be underwater by 2030 right we're not we're not having to look a long way ahead to see these enormous challenges arising from this and now comes the serious business about methane in the landmass around the arctic circle i uh, sorry around the north pole where the arctic ocean is we have a vast amount of permafrost and in the permafrost is a vast amount of methane hydrate and methane hydrate is now bubbling up on many many parts of the permafrost during those three polar summer months and the temperatures in that region are now sometimes approaching plus 30 plus 32 degrees centigrade the boreal forests catching fire because they are experiencing lightning for the first time in any human record and the boreal forests on fire those forests that have been there for many many hundreds of years is a major challenge to the people the inuit and the sami people living in that region but also for the whole planet because the release of methane from methane hydrate as the permafrost heats up is potentially disastrous there's enough methane there that if it was all emitted in simply five sorry in simply 20 years the lifetime half-life of methane in the atmosphere is about 10 to 12 years so that's about two half-lives could lead to a temperature rise of five to eight degrees centigrade for the whole planet and this is already beginning to happen so what what we see is the consequences of the arctic circle melting and the, all of this is the extreme weather events we've been experiencing particularly in the northern hemisphere during exactly those three summer months and if you if you create warm air over the north pole the cold air that was protected by the jet stream going around the north pole protecting the warm air from the south going into the uh, north pole region and the cold air from the north pole coming down it's a very strong wind that wind is now massively distorted and those distortions really lead to most of the extreme weather events we're observing now what i'm saying is we're in a situation which demands a new look at the safe management of the planet going forward for humanity and for our biodiverse systems and that safe management means recognizing yes deep and rapid emissions reduction is critical we're emitting including methane of course 
more than 45 billion tons of greenhouse gases a year. But if I then take you to the next phase, we have to stop doing that. But the next phase must be that we've put too much in the way of greenhouse gases up there already. If the Arctic Circle region has heated up so rapidly and its impacts on the whole world, we've already passed that tipping point. So I'm saying, think again. We have to remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere at scale. And the work at Cambridge is now focused on only projects can, that can remove more than a billion tons a year. We're looking to see if we can manage 30 or 40 billion tons a year and it'll take us to the end of the century, even at that rate, to get a manageable planet, which I believe is more like 350 parts per million. Third thing is, how do we get time on our side? We have to learn to refreeze the Arctic. And I leave you with this. The group that uh, I've set up in Cambridge is already working with a global consortium on how we can refreeze the Arctic. And it's, this is not putting sulfates into the stratosphere, which I think is very dangerous. Uh, but we are looking at other viable technologies. We have to roll them forward as quickly as we can. If we can keep for those three polar months, the ice that has grown during the North Pole winter over the Arctic Ocean, we have a chance because the ice will grow year on year and we begin to reflect sunlight back again. But we will have to repeat the process of reflecting sunlight away from the Arctic Ocean every year until we've brought greenhouse gases down to a reasonable level. Methane, critical. Let's make sure that we know how to trap methane. Carbon dioxide, of course, but methane hasn't been given enough attention. Thank you. One of the uh, questions that has come up several times, I think perhaps, Dave, you may have misspoke. Did you did you mean to say by 2030 that Vietnam would be 90% underwater? Um, the figure I gave, 90% of the landmass uh, by 2030. So we're looking at what happens at the when the moon's trajectory brings it closest to that area of Vietnam. And so this is simply looking at the high water levels produced uh, in the, the tidal basin of that uh, region. And yes, 2030 is, is the right figure. And of course, the rice paddy fields would be very difficult to sustain after they've been salinated at that sort of level. Third biggest rice producer in the world. That was Sir David King speaking at a Methane Action Seminar hosted by MethaneAction.org. As you heard in the question and answer period, David King explained 90% of Vietnam would not be underwater by 2030 due to rising seas. Instead, with rising seas, when the moon is close enough to draw big tides, 90% of Vietnam, which includes the large and fertile Mekong Delta, would be flooded by seawater. World rice exports would be affected. It may not stay, but the croplands could be damaged. The key point, the Arctic has already warmed past 3 degrees C over previous centuries. Sensitive tipping points have already been triggered there. Sir David thinks an emergency effort to save the remaining sea ice might prevent unstoppable changes there, or at least stall the worst until we can repair the atmosphere. 
somehow. Please pass on the audio of David King's warning, available from my website at ecoshock.org. In a coming show, I hope to get more time to discuss the current state of methane removal technology and Rob Jackson's explanation of why we have to tackle methane now. It is a last-ditch effort to dial down rising heat before the next tipping points are reached. It looks pretty bleak. Are these repeated climate-driven disasters changing people's mind around the world? How do people in over 100 countries feel about the future climate? Gallup polls can actually tell us about the global fall of well-being. Then Carolyn Baker joins us with her new book, Undaunted, Living Fiercely into Climate Meltdown in an Authoritarian World. We may learn how to live with cancer or without a spouse, but few of us can imagine the death of the natural environment and the ruin of the very air we breathe. In recent years, billions of people suffered through extreme heat. How do they feel about it? Does it affect your outlook on life? The Gallup organization just released their new report, Climate Change and Well-Being Around the World, How High Temperatures Harm Well-Being. Dr. Nicole Wilcoxon led the study. She is research director at Gallup, the world's best-known polling organization. Nicole is also a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. Nicole Wilcoxon, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you so much, Alex. This new Gallup analysis is the biggest study yet on the personal impacts of climate change. How did your group define well-being? What we're looking at here is individuals' life evaluations or how they feel about their own personal life. And the well-being um, via this metric is something that Gallup has been tracking since the beginning of our world poll in 2005. And so we were able to to use this data among 1.75 million um, responses um, over the time horizon of the study in order to have consistent measures of well-being across that time. Back in 1972, the King of Bhutan suggested countries should measure gross national happiness rather than gross domestic product. Why did Gallup start tracking well-being? Well, that's a great question. We think that there are additional elements to the human experience that um, provide insights about the, the state of the global population that go beyond economic issues. And so one of the things Gallup has noticed over time by attracting this well-being is that we've seen significant shifts in um, sentiment among the population based on declines in well-being over time. So for one good example is that during the global financial crisis, um, obviously we saw economic decline, but we also saw life evaluations falling by 3.7%. And we also see pattern of conflict being emerging and leading up to that conflict, we can see declines in well-being via our World Poll estimates. So we think it's a really important additional metric for um, policymakers to consider. Typically, Gallup telephones a wide selection of about 1,000 people, say, in one area to ask set questions. Could you just briefly introduce us to what is the Cantrell scale of well-being? And so this is a scale that asks um, subjects to imagine a ladder. Uh, with steps from zero up through 10, and to share what step they would consider themselves on in terms of their own life. And so this is a validated metric that um, we've used over time, and that we find consistent measures resulting from individuals' life evaluations. We find it to be a very um, 
valid predictor um, for um, happiness and well-being across a number of dimensions. And I noticed the Gallup Life Evaluation Wellbeing Index can be simplified to three states of being, thriving, struggling, and suffering. And I think those say a lot about the modern world. In the global picture, who thinks of themselves as thriving and who's suffering? Is it just based on wealth? No, there are a number of dimensions that go into understanding whether an individual is thriving, um, suffering. We see that it's not only about your personal well-being, but also finance, um, relationships, um, social relationships, and additional metrics that kind of combine into an index of, of well-being. And what about education? Is that a factor in perception of well-being during global warming? Well, in this particular study, we did actually see a relationship. We saw that people who had um, lower levels of education were more likely to report, uh, you know, lower levels of life evaluation based on experiencing high temperature days. So that we do see a disparity across populations based on their levels of education in terms of how they experience those high heat days. And as you point out in the new report, well-being is more than a psychological state for individuals. I mean, governments have to watch out for people's perception of happiness. It can have political uh, ramifications, even changes of power. Absolutely. And I think another key finding from this, this research is that we see disparities across distinct countries with large populations in developing world. There's in the in the report itself, we identify 110 countries that seem to be at, at greatest risk of these rising temperatures and their populations having um, a, a greater risk of declining life evaluations. And we see um, this in particular um, um, among some of the most highest populated countries, such as China, Turkey and Brazil, uh, Mexico and others that make up a significant proportion of the world population. So you've got millions of points of data of self-reporting. How did the Gallup team manage to connect those years of polls on well-being to climate change? Yeah, that's a really great question, Alex. So we were able to um, utilize um, the vast amount of data we have um, from the Gallup World Poll, almost 2 million responses now, and combine that individual level data with objective NASA data over 30 years of high resolution temperature data. And we're able to um, identify outliers in temperature patterns. And because it's geolocated, we could map it onto the individual and their location and understand how those high temperature days have impacted a person's life evaluation given at that experience of a high temperature day in the 30 days prior to the interview. And so by that um, merging of that data, we're able to map on the relationship between those high temperature days and life evaluation, and of course, controlling for other factors that might um, affect life evaluation. A couple of puzzling things come out of this. Why are humans most responsible for changing the atmosphere, that's most of us listening, likely to experience a less decline in well-being than the majority of humans in the less developed world? 
Well, I think there's um, a couple of things here. We see higher risk, higher vulnerability of particular populations. And what we're seeing is that places that are hotter, um, there is a greater relationship already. But this is, a, I think, a significant warning to other parts of the world that are also going to potentially experience an acceleration of increasing temperatures in the next decade. So what our study did was we were able to track what happened in the last decade in terms of well-being, identify areas of risk, but we also are foreshadowing that this is something that's not going the way. We are observing that based on trends in the last decade, that in the next decade, there will be increasing declines globally. And what we want to continue to do is track this um, at the country level in the future so we can determine increasingly where those risks um, are more exacerbated as time goes on and as temperatures um, continue to rise. And another puzzle, even though billions of people in Asia suffer more damage and hardship due to climate change, they are less likely to demand climate action from their governments. Why is that? Well, this is not probably something that that this particular study looked at. However, we do see that um, because there are these declines, particularly we we point out China in the report, that this um, is a potential um, a call to action or important data point for leadership in that region to consider this this new data and this new study as they look toward um, policy um, reform and um, thinking about ways to to temper to, to temper this issue. We we think that this is something that definitely should be considered um, as policymakers take a look at answers to um, to curb uh, climate change. Your report takes several case studies, including tropical cyclones Ida and Kenneth in 2019. If your study correlates the well-being survey with NASA temperature data, how could you include these huge storms as well? Yes, so these were um, particular case studies that we we used um, in order to identify examples of where this um, might be taking place on the ground. So we, because we have this precise data uh, at the local level from our Gallup World Poll, where we conduct face-to-face interviews, we were able to match that data with high temperature at that local level and and look at that decline in well-being based on um, the the life evaluation metric. Well, you have several helpful studies in it, including one on the Mekong Delta drought of 2016 and something on Mexico as well. But let's talk about China. Does the government of China allow Gallup to do public polling? Yes, we uh, currently conduct uh, survey research in, in China via our World Poll. And one presumes the Chinese government uses Gallup polls just as most governments do. A lot of our work um, via the World Poll does become public. And so once that is uh, released to the public, we think that uh, any policymakers could, could use that data accordingly. And you found there's a geography of well-being or lack of it in China, and it sort of reminded me it's probably the same in the United States. But what was the pattern that you found in China that it, it's just not equally distributed? Right. So there's additional um, regional disparities in China, as one would expect to see regional disparities in, you know, in any country, given economic differences, differences in levels of education and so forth and, and, and more at risk populations. So we do observe a, one of the great things about this detailed data about the Gallup World Poll is that we're able to map it to some of those regions and, and kind of even get a more precise 
pinpoint of where life evaluation is higher or lower across even within an individual country. And so that we, we think this is a really important um, addition that this research adds is that precision of being able to look at lower geographic levels, even beyond the country level. So hundreds of millions of people in the developing world are getting new tools. They're getting, for example, they might get electricity or they might get a scooter so they don't have to walk miles to work. Is it possible for people to say things are getting better even as climate deteriorates into a series of disasters? Well, that's actually a really great question and something we we hope to explore in future research, that question of human adaptability. And so while we've, we've demonstrated here that there's a clear relationship between rising temperatures and declines in well-being. As the public becomes more adaptable, the question will be how much more adaptable is possible? How can we measure that adaptability? And what does that mean for future projections? So in our study, we we do find that people will potentially face up to three, over a little bit over three days of high temperature in by 2030. And we project that that you know, global well-being will decline by an estimated 17 percent by 2030 based on the, the projections from the last uh, decade. But a question about whether people will be able to adapt to rising temperatures or find um, remedies to um, alleviate that is, is, I think, a big question. But I also think it goes beyond the individual. I think there's also um, policy implications here that, that are important for that to actually take place. Well, maybe you can help us understand how this math works uh, with this idea. In the summer of 2022, the heat in China passed all previous records, and I know that's after your report was written. But according to Chinese media, extreme heat lasted 70 days, more than two months. Your Gallup report says, quote, each time a person experiences a high-temperature day, their life evaluation drops by an average of 0.56%. Now, is that cumulative? So a person in China with 70 days of high heat might report their feeling of well-being down by over 35%? This is not necessarily additive because there are instances where someone's life evaluation might recover. But what our study does is, is tracks the average over the period based on that, based on including that assumption within the analysis. So um the potential is there for life evaluation to drop uh, by a significant amount. And as we see a potential global decline in 17%, and that's an average over the whole globe. So you can imagine a case if you've got a heat wave um, over that amount of time, certainly having that potential impact of a very high declines in life evaluation. And we're thinking again, I just want to remind everyone that we're thinking about that 10 point scale is how we're measuring it. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest from the Gallup Polling Company is Research Director Nicole Wilcoxon. We're talking about their new report, Climate Change and Well-Being Around the World, How High Temperatures Harm Well-Being. We had a major forest fire near our home a few years ago, and now people are nervous every summer. And then we got the meanest heat dome ever experienced in Canada. When people begin to fear summer, that takes away one of the great pleasures of life and makes working outdoors harder. What I'm asking here is, how long does this decline in well-being go on? Do we know that yet? 
I think that's a big question. In our research, we project that it will continue to decline without any remedy to curb climate change based on our projection that people will face up to three times more high temperature days um, moving into the next decade. Even from 2008 to 2020, people faced, um, uh, went up from about 0.36 days in 2008 up to uh, one day in 2020. And we think that it will rise up to three, a little over three days by 2030. So um, given, you know, UN climate projections showing that without any additional action, temperatures will continue to rise at an accelerated rate based on the data we've collected and analyzed. We don't see any remedy unless there are changes to that trajectory. And what does erosion of enjoyment of life mean for the economy and for social life? Does well-being drive participation and striving, or does lack of it lead to fatalism and drug use and economic decline? Uh, How does it work out in, in society? Well, I think when you look at a global level, there are a lot of implications here. We think that this could potentially foreshadow, you know, increase global crises such as food insecurity, potential conflict, declines in mental health. There are a number of issues that this could potentially result in. And, and one, one stark finding that I want to point out from the study is that we do observe that, you know, more vulnerable populations, uh, such as the elderly, are disproportionately impacted. And we know from prior research uh, that uh, there are serious health consequences for the elderly um, related to heat. So those are just some a few examples of some of the implications and, and consequences that could come out of this study. Of course, we didn't quantify that directly, but you know, based on research around climate change and, and the, the, the effects of heat, we think that there could be serious um, implications for what we're seeing in the data. You mentioned the 2009 financial crisis. How does the decline in well-being due to global warming compared to the erosion of happiness due to that financial crisis when the global economy almost collapsed? We saw a uh, 3.7% decline um, as a result of the global financial crisis. Then we saw it tick back up. And we are estimating is over a, over more of a decade time span, so a 6.5% decline over, over a, a, a 10-year time horizon. So, But what the point of that is, is that these metrics are very stable. So the, the fact that we see this 6.5% decline over the last decade is a really substantively meaningful finding. It shows that despite these, the stability of this metric that we've measured at Gallup over time, climate change does seem to have a clear relationship with life evaluation and well-being. The report, Climate Change and Well-Being Around the World, ends with suggestions for future research. Please tell us about that, Nicole. Yes, thank you so much, Alex. We think that the, you know, I mentioned earlier the idea of adaptability, and I think that's something that we should uh, continue to consider uh, as we move forward with additional research. We also want to be able to quantify the effect of, at a, at a larger scale, of uh, extreme weather events. So what we're looking at here is rising temperatures, but as we know, we're also facing quite a few extreme weather events, wildfires, um, and such around the world, and we want to um, try to integrate that in some of our analysis moving forward so we can understand the extent to which those events may have additional impacts, if any, on on declining life evaluation. Should we expect Gallup to follow up with the extreme events from 2022 and following years? 
Yes, this is something that um, we are hoping to add to our research agenda. And I and I think that as we continue to collect this data through via the World Poll, and um, as NASA continues to have this objective temperature data and additional data around um, extreme weather events, it's definitely something that we could pursue on, on our time horizon. I see Gallup Press is also bringing out a book, Blind Spot, The Global Rise of Unhappiness and How Leaders Missed It. What is that about? Well, I think this is a trend about looking at this rise in unhappiness around the world and that it's not something leadership was really focused on. And we see a really large spike in in most recent years where um, this is something that could have serious implications um, for mental health and and other aspects of well-being. And our CEO, uh, John Clifton, will be uh, releasing that book shortly. But that's not just about climate change. That could include things like the pandemic, the economic situation, and a host of other things. Exactly. It encompasses um, factors beyond climate change, economic issues, but also just thinking about unhappiness around the world in general. So it's a really, it's really quantifying that global level of, of unhappiness that's increased over, over time. Is your report Climate Change and Wellbeing Around the World available free to our listeners? And if so, how can they find it? Absolutely. Um, we have the report on the on the Gallup website, and it's um, you can download it free of charge. It's open to the, the public. There's also additional analysis on our Gallup News website, news.gallup.com, um, where my co-author Benedict Clue and I um, do a summary of, of these analyses. We've been speaking with Research Director of Gallup, Nicole Wilcoxon. Find links to this report on how high temperatures harm well-being in my show blog at ecoshock.org as well. Nicole, thank you for helping us out on Radio Ecoshock. Thank you so much, Alex. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for your interest in the research. I'm Alex Smith reporting. Climate chaos is not a problem to be solved or fought, but a predicament that we can only respond to. The root cause of our predicament, estrangement from the embodied experience of intimate connection with all life, with other humans, and with ourselves. Crazy heat struck California again in early September after a summer of punishing heat waves all across the Northern Hemisphere. Think of that, right around the world. How can we handle knowing extreme weather is only going to get worse? How do we go forward into a more hostile future? Science is not enough. We turn now to former psychotherapist and professor of psychology, Carolyn Baker. Carolyn runs a daily newsletter, and it is a source for Radio EcoShock and many other people. In addition to her online workshops and counseling, Baker is author of more than a dozen books, including Navigating the Coming Chaos. Her latest book is Undaunted, Living Fiercely into Climate Meltdown in an Authoritarian World. From Boulder, Colorado, Carolyn Baker, a warm welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. It's really good to be back talking with you. I, I love your program, and I'm always honored to be on it. Well, thank you. Have you ever seen a summer like this with global heat waves, floods, and drought? What does it tell us? Well, it tells us that we're being smacked upside the head by climate catastrophe. It tells us that we can no longer deny the reality of climate catastrophe. And it tells us that we need to prepare ourselves emotionally and spiritually for this to get worse every year or maybe even more 
more often than every year. Uh, you know, we had uh, here in Colorado on December 30th, in the middle of winter, we had terrible fires that took out 1,200 homes. And that is the most unprecedented kind of weather that we've ever had here. And I suspect we're going to see this kind of thing happening everywhere. Yes, I'm afraid that's true. We certainly had our fires and smoke last year in British Columbia, but this year we've sort of had a a bit of a summer off. Now, in your book, you talk about living fiercely, and that sounds like a possibility of rage or even violence. Could you talk about what you really mean? Well, fiercely just means, from my perspective, uh, just means passionately. And it doesn't mean angrily. It doesn't mean like we're out to rage at anyone. It just means that there is passion, that we're not defeated by all of this, that we are not walking around with a sense of, you know, either I'm going to just think about ending it all because there's no hope and there's no point in staying around, or becoming a couch potato and just constantly distracting ourselves. Fiercely is a place in between where we are looking in a very clear-eyed manner at our predicaments, but we're not responding with despair or distraction. So you don't think humanity will be able to solve climate change? Absolutely not. I believe that there are ways that we can mitigate it and make it a little less severe in certain ways. But absolutely, this is unfixable. We are well past the point of no return. And we have enough science to know humanity and all living things are in deep trouble. Some people respond with denial, but others do look to psychology or spirituality for personal answers. If we are science-minded, should we resist that? Absolutely not. This goes to the basic reality of right brain and left brain. Science can answer certain questions for us, and it is certainly showing us the stark reality of climate chaos and potential climate catastrophe. We must learn the science. We must know what's going on. And then what do we do with the horrible information? Again, do we uh, distract ourselves? Do we take lots of drugs? Uh, Do we drink more? Do we fall down into despair? How do we respond? And that's what fiercely actually means. It means looking at this very clearly, looking at the science, knowing exactly where this is going, and at the same time being able to prepare ourselves emotionally and tapping into spiritual connections that are meaningful for us. Now, that varies from person to person. Some people uh, experience deep spiritual connection by by going deep into nature and really being contemplative in a quiet place such as nature. Other people, you know, express it in, in other ways. But certainly anything that brings meaning, and I think that's the key word, meaning and purpose to our lives. That is what we need to be focusing on right now. Yes. I wonder if you could talk to us about the difference between being a doomer and a post-doomer. Yeah, I'll do my best. Um, 
The person who really explains that well is Michael Dowd, as I'm sure you know. A doomer is a person who is studying and looking at climate change and all of the symptoms of the collapse of industrial civilization and perhaps feeling desperate, not knowing what to do, um, maybe feeling angry and bitter, maybe staying stoned or staying, you know, uh, mood-altered all of the time in order to cope, maybe out there trying to wake everybody up and make them see so that they'll be prepared, but not really accepting that this is where we're going, where we already are. A post-doomer is a person who says, This is happening, and it's terrible, it's horrifying, it's painful, it pisses me off, I'm, I'm scared, I feel all of these emotions, and I am in a place of accepting that this is happening. And I think there has to be some sort of turning point for us to move, and I think it's a gradual move, usually, from a place of doom to post-doom. It's like, okay... This is happening. It's a predicament that cannot be solved. And so what do I need to prepare myself and those around me that I care about for what is coming forth, what we're going into, and um, how do I find meaning and purpose and community and caring with with others who are awake to our predicament? Have psychological professionals caught up with the need to help people with climate anxiety? Some have. Not as many as we need to uh, to catch up with this. It's, you know, in some places it's still being pathologized, you know, like, well, you shouldn't worry about this so much. Where does this come from? Your, from your childhood trauma or, you know, some other place? But for the most part, I think that many, many clinicians are now moving into realizing what's actually going on out there in the environment and, and how that affects their clients. And I think this is increasing around the country and around the world. Carolyn, I can't help but notice the words authoritarian world in your new book title. Why go there and how does that relate to the problems we're talking about? Why go there is that in an authoritarian world, in authoritarian countries, there is very little attention paid to climate chaos. In fact, it's usually denied and used in an opportunistic way. Um, If we can deny it and say it's not happening, then we can exploit the climate even more. We can increase our profits and we can make the environment even worse than it already is. And if people are preoccupied with the environment, they're not preoccupied with being good citizens, following orders. You know, it's just another thing that is, you know, associated with the liberal left, and we want to keep everything in line. And that's one reason I have a whole chapter on how corporations in an authoritarian world actually profit from all of this. It is to the advantage of authoritarian governments to deny climate change and exploit it to the max. 
But how can anybody prepare for the chaos that we do see developing? Do we need to become sort of mental preppers? I think so, mental and emotional. Uh, The very first chapter in my book is called Emotions Are Allies, Not Enemies. And so doing inner emotional work, becoming comfortable with all of our emotions and talking about them with others as as it is appropriate, becoming comfortable with our anxiety and taking good care of ourselves emotionally and physically uh, is really, really important and challenging, you know, because one of the things that is that we're seeing now worldwide is that our personal traumas are getting stirred and erupting around the climate situation. Climate is stirring the pot of our individual traumas, and and so that the two are connected, and that's why we need to do deep inner work, we need to become familiar with our emotions, we need to talk with other people who understand what this is about, and we need to have communities of caring. I don't mean intentional communities necessarily, but places where we can talk about these things with each other. And so I appreciate the work of Michael Dowd because he's constantly making a place on YouTube for discussion around this and encouraging people to set up their own small groups in their communities or online with others who understand what is happening and and can read the tea leaves. You and others talk about the possibility of human extinction, and we do know scientifically humans will eventually go extinct because all complex species do. But despite everything that you and I know about climate change that we learn on this program, I personally do not expect humans to go extinct anytime soon. In fact, not for a very long time. We're we're very adaptable. We're tough. I think we may go back to cave people, but some of us will be around. Do we disagree on that? No. And um, I think that even if there is a massive extinction event or several of them, that there will be pockets of humans remaining. And I'm not sure where or how. I'm not sure, and I'd be very curious to know what kind of people they will be after they have survived something like this terrible catastrophe and these, you know, potential extinction events. So, no, I am not with those who are saying that everything is going extinct and this will just be a a planet of dirt and uh, radiation and all life will be gone from it anytime soon. We've talked about emotions here, and I have to say some of us are feeling bitter. I mean, why did leaders and people not listen to the warnings years ago? Why are humans still seemingly willing to sacrifice their own future and and their young to buy more things? How does a person get past that anger as climate disasters pile up one on another? Well, I don't know that you ever get completely past it or that you should get completely past it, but you cannot be walking around obsessing about this and blaming people because if you're doing that, you're not really moving into acceptance and you're not really being of service. That's a huge part of the preparation, not only processing your feelings about it and supporting each other, but also what 
you know, this question is constantly haunting me, and it's going to be the topic of a webinar and a discussion group on the Undaunted book that my colleague Eric Garza and I are planning this fall. The question is, what is this crisis asking of me? How can I be of service? How can I use my talents and skills to make life better for certain living beings that I feel called to help? I can't save them. I can't stop this catastrophe. But I can make some lives, including my own, better. So what is there for me to do, and, and how should I proceed in doing that? Because carrying around only the bitterness is, 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 is clear indication that we're not living in acceptance, and we're not doing what we need to be doing. And people can tune into those efforts at carolynbaker.net. That's correct. And you could also subscribe to my daily news digest, as you do, Alex. Uh, if you go to carolynbaker.net, you can just click on subscribe and go from there. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest, former psychologist, author, and post-doom counselor, I guess we could say, Carolyn Baker. We are discussing her latest book, Undaunted, Living Fiercely into Climate Meltdown in an Authoritarian World. Carolyn, you know better than most the work of Swiss psychologist Carl Jung. How would you describe the shadow, and does that manifest in these times of ecological and social collapse? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we're, right now we're seeing an eruption of the shadow going wild. The shadow is any part of us that we send away in order to survive. So as children, you know, we send away uh, qualities in ourselves that others don't like or don't approve of. They could be negative qualities. They can be positive qualities. But we send those away, send those away, and they don't go away. They just kind of get stuffed into the back door of the psyche. And uh, if we don't deal with that shadow, eventually it erupts, as we're seeing right now all around us. I wrote a book in 2015 called Dark Gold, The Human Shadow and the Global Crisis, in which I go into this much more deeply. But what we're seeing right now, this resistance to democracy, this attraction to fascism, this destruction of the environment, all of these negative qualities are aspects of the human shadow. And that's another chapter that I have in my book is how do we look at our own shadows and stop projecting them on other people? You said on a couple of occasions, figure out what it is that you don't like in someone else. And the reason that you don't understand that the reason you don't like that in somebody else is because it's also a reflection of you. What part of you is like that, that you are projecting like a movie projector onto somebody else? And so shadow work is really an important part of the emotional and spiritual work and preparation that we all need to be doing. Well, that's one of the things I really liked about this new book, because instead of telling people how to deal with all those other crazy people who just won't listen to the truth, you say, well, it all begins with ourselves, and that's where we have to begin our work. And your books are stuffed with useful quotes that made me pause and think. 
uh, with mystics and, and with Buddhist quotes that I wouldn't have seen. And I know you're a fan of the medieval Arabic poet uh, Rumi. But, you know, I have to say, in a world trying to awaken from a long period, almost a slumber of religion, we're now using science. Why would we go back and, and trust these ancient sages? Because science is not enough. We're living with terrible uncertainty right now, and I have a chapter in the book called The Limits of the Rational Mind and the Human Ego. The rational mind and the human ego uh, have participated in getting us where we are now. I'm not putting down the rational mind, and we all need an ego in order to just navigate in the world. But we have become rational-minded people off the charts, egoic off the charts, and we've lost sight of that deeper meaning, that deeper self within us. And unless we do our, our work of connecting with that and integrating that into who we are and what we do, we're just going to do more of the same. If science were enough, it would have saved us. Obviously, it hasn't. Science cannot prepare us emotionally and spiritually for what is unfolding in front of our very eyes, for potential extinction, for um, increasing Arctic ice melt, increasing drought and fires and catastrophe. We have to weigh that human beings crave ways to cope with this, ways to make peace with this in their own hearts, and ways to support each other in doing so. That's part of our humanity. Science and the rational mind are only one piece. Yes, I loved your work about trying to live with uncertainty. I mean, we don't know what the stock market's going to do. We don't know if our jobs are going to hold up. What's going on with this pandemic? Uh, the climate change as a gardener, we didn't have spring until the end of June. And then, oh, I don't know. We don't know whether hail is coming the next day. Can a person still be happy and balanced and productive when the rest of the world is so shaky? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I admire about Jung, whom you mentioned a while ago, is his notion of holding the tension of opposites. So that on the one hand, the world is shaky, the economic situation is uncertain, the environment is, is off the charts unpredictable and horrifying in many places. Uh, you know, we've got two-thirds of a country of Pakistan underwater and tremendous loss of life, both human and other forms of life. Yes, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we can do the emotional work that I'm talking about, deepen our spiritual connection, whatever that looks like for us, work in our gardens, do satisfying work in the world, serve other people and use our talents and skills to make life better for living beings. We can do both. And that doesn't mean that we're going to 24 hours a day feel just one thing. You know, oh, wow, now I feel grounded. I'm doing this work that I love. I don't really feel the pain of the rest of the world. That's not going to happen. Not if we're really doing our inner work. 
we're going to feel compassion and caring for the rest of the world that is suffering. So we go back and forth, and we feel a tension between the suffering of the world and the fulfilling aspects of our own life. And what Jung talked about is holding that tension, and that's a big job, holding that in our bodies. You know, Mary Oliver, the poet, says, we shake with grief, we shake with joy. What a time these two have, houses they are in the same body. So we hold the tension of the opposites as best we can, and what Jung said is that in doing that, much of the situation within us is transformed. That helps us to begin accepting, not distracting from, but accepting the collapse and the predicament of our world. Tell us about your webinars and other ways that people can connect as they struggle with this harsh climate truth. Well, I've already mentioned the Daily News Digest. And by the way, at the end of every digest, there's an inspiration section. It's not a section of, oh, everything's going to be okay. You're, you're, you're just fine. Don't fret. Um, no, it's, it's a section of articles or sometimes podcasts that help people center themselves, hold the attention of the opposites, serve others, and do the inner work that I'm talking about. So there's that, and the other part is the webinar that uh, we've been discussing. If you go to my website, carolynbaker.net, you will see on the homepage that my colleague Eric Garza and I from the Quillwood Academy are offering a free webinar on September 15th and on September 22nd. This is in preparation for a six-week study group on Undaunted that we are going to be doing together. So if you go to my website, all of the information, registration uh, format, and everything is right there for you. From Boulder, Colorado, we've been speaking with author, psychologist, and global witness Carolyn Baker. You can grab any of Carolyn's tools, as she's talked about, at carolynbaker.net. And as always, I will add a few links in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org as well. Carolyn, you know talking with you seems like a therapy session in itself. Thank you for helping us on Radio Ecoshock. You're very welcome, Alex. Thank you for having me. I'm Alex Smith. We are out of time. During the climate emergency, please tune in to Radio Ecoshock. Find more links and comments in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world.